Save question. We'll save questions still after Dr. Schooley's talk. Uh, Chip Schooley is well known to people who've come to this talk, this session before. He's professor and vice chair of medicine at University of San Diego and heads the division of infectious disease. His talk is going to be on HIV and HCV co-infection challenges and progress. Chip. There will be many therapeutic challenges with the same sorts of, of uh, approaches to disease that we, this audience is well used to, uh, and that as interferon-free regimens uh, become increasingly available, there will be a flood of patients who want to be treated, and this population of healthcare uh, in the healthcare field is going to be the only one who can actually uh, substantially expand the pool of treaters in, this, in the near future. So let me just... Um, uh, begin by saying I'm going to talk in uh, abbreviated terms just about the uh, populations at risk and pathogenesis of natural history, that uh, the differences that HIV brings to the HCV co-infection table. Uh, we've talked about this in this and other courses before, so this will be quite abbreviated, and then spend most of the time talking about the rapidly changing field of HCV therapeutics. When you think about hepatitis C, uh, it's really the most common bloodborne, chronic bloodborne infection in the U.S. Uh, there are about four times as many people with HCV as there are with HIV, uh, and uh, there's still about 18,000 new infections per year, a substantial decrease uh, in the last two decades, but it's really important to emphasize that there is a, sub a substantial uh, ongoing uh, transmission uh, among uh, male homosexuals in U.S. Uh, European and Australian cities that is leading to a new wave of HCV infections that uh, we're increasingly seeing uh, are playing a role in, um, in acute infection. And because the disease has such a long half-life, a long uh, period from infection to morbidity and mortality, the uh, infections that have accumulated in the past will continue to drive an increasing amount of morbidity and mortality from HCV for several years to come. If you, uh, those of you who uh, read the annals uh, will know that earlier this year we saw that the ongoing success in HCV, HIV therapeutics has led to a, a continued decline in deaths from uh, HIV. Hepatitis C, on the other hand, has continued inexorably up and now has surpassed HIV as the major chronic viral cause of death in the United States. This increase in... Um, in um, and uh, morbidity and mortality is seen across all ethnic groups, uh, particularly in Hispanics and people of color, uh, but it's true across the board and is projected to continue to increase uh, for several years to come. 
Now, we have encountered it uh, as HIV providers, uh, have encountered HCV primarily because of the overlap between the two populations at risk in terms of modes of transmission, uh, with uh, sex and injecting drug use contributing to the epidemiology of both viruses, there is a substantial overlap community of people with both infections. And many of us came to the HCV uh, management table uh, by virtue of uh, the door of HIV. But as I uh, argued earlier, I think we'll see more and more of us getting involved in this part of the pie as well. Around the world, uh, there are about 180 million infected people with HCV that, again, uh, is a four-fold or so uh, uh, excess uh, over the number of people who are chronically infected with HIV. And there are hotspots where there are substantial uh, co-infection uh, uh, clusters of HCV and HIV in the U.S., uh, in Southern Europe, uh, and in uh, Southeast Asia associated with the drug trade. Now, HCV uh, is a genetically diverse virus, just like HIV is. It's... Um, an RNA virus, and it uses an enzyme to uh, copy its RNA, which is essentially an uh, even less um, um, uh, careful knockoff of HIV reverse transcriptase. And this leads to incredible gen genetic diversity. Uh, this is the uh, uh, dendrogram of HCV diversity, showing you that it is about 10 times as diverse as HIV, and uh, that it has multiple subtypes that uh, are genotypes that unlike HIV, actually do make a difference uh, in terms of how we approach the virus therapeutically. The uh, genotype that's most commonly seen in the U.S. is genotype 1, and there's as much genetic diversity in HCV genotype 1 as there is in all of HIV, to give you an idea about what a sloppy, promiscuous, messy virus this is. Now, that has... Um, so if this is kind of, of uh, Jimmy Carter, you can think about this as uh, Silvio Berlusconi. So uh, in terms of the um, implications for therapy, uh, as we move from interferon-based regimens to uh, traditional small molecular inhibitors, we're going to have to deal with drug resistance and the same sorts of challenges we've had in dealing with HIV. Now, the uh, subtypes of HCV, the genotypes that I uh, discussed, are really circulating around the world as essentially separate um, epidemics. Uh, it turns out in the U.S. that the genotype that we see most uh, is genotype 1, genotype 1A and 1B. Uh, and I'll use that shorthand now because this is the one we encounter most. At, when I say hepatitis C, I'm really talking about genotype 1 primarily in the U.S. And that's important because two-thirds to or so of the HCV in the U.S. is that genotype. That's the toughest one to treat with interferon and ribavirin. And that's the genotype that most of the new drug development was initially directed towards and uh, about which most of the implications of my talk uh, are most relevant. Now, when you think about where we are with the HCV epidemic, uh, we've only cured uh, a small number, a small fraction of the people who have the disease, and that's the goal with therapeutics. A large fraction either are just identified and not in care or not even identified. So in some ways, it was like the early days of the HIV epidemic with many people infected and unaware of it. Now, how does HIV affect HCV pathogenesis uh, and natural history? Well, HCV is a disease uh, in which the target is the liver. And if you start with a liver that looks like John Ferris and end with a liver that looks like mine, you go through a series of increasing stages of inflammation and ultimately fibrosis that is a result 
of some of this bad remodeling that you heard about from Dr. Tracy earlier. The rate at which this occurs varies from person to person and can be influenced by a number of factors. And the natural history of HCV uh, is that we undergo an acute infection uh, that uh, resolves in 15 to 30 percent of people, depending on uh, a number of genetic factors, um, without any evidence of the virus uh, remaining presence. This resolution occurs in general in three to four months after the acute infection. During this period of time, many people are asymptomatic. Some people may have a viral syndrome, uh, and it's uh, uh, often completely uh, sub rosa in terms of coming to clinical attention. During this period of time, however, uh, the virus is quite vulnerable, and if you treat patients in this acute phase with interferon and ribavirin, not even pegylated interferon ribavirin, old-fashioned interferon ribavirin, you can cure 95% of them. As I'll show you later, the cure rates for this same kind of a regimen in established disease were only in the range of 45%. So if you catch somebody in this early phase of acute infection uh, and during the period of seroconversion, uh, you have a very good chance of curing them with a relatively uh, easy uh, short course of interferon and ribavirin. Now, if they don't resolve... Uh, and go on down this uh, pathway of, uh, toward chronic uh, hepatitis C, over a period of 20 to 30 years, an increasing fraction will develop uh, cirrhosis, uh, ultimately decompensated cirrhosis, and hepatocellular carcinoma. If you add HIV to this mix, this 20 to 30-year history down this pathway is accelerated uh, by threefold and can be as short a period of time as 8 to 10 years. So from the standpoint of the um, therapeutic decisions uh, that we face in co-infection, we can expect the disease to progress more rapidly, uh, and it makes it a, um, a more uh, important decision about when to initiate therapy for HCV. Now, one caveat is that if we control HIV with antiretroviral drugs, this can be slowed back down toward, but not completely to, the longer uh, uh, progression uh, period that we see in mono-infection, which is one of the reasons that we recommend uh, HCV be one of the uh, triggers for any retroviral therapy, regardless of CD4 cell count, even in the days before the liberalization of uh, starting therapeutic guidelines. So to, to summarize the pathogenesis issues, uh, people with HCV co-infection uh, and HIV generally have higher levels of HCV. They progress more rapidly. Uh, if you treat the HIV successfully, you can reverse this in part, and uh, HCV, HCV treatment success rates are generally lower with traditional therapeutics uh, in co-infected patients. So I realize I've kind of raced through that, but what I really wanted to do is talk today primarily about the therapeutic advances that have been occurring over the last 12 to 18 months. If you think about where we are uh, with HCV, it's important to kind of get a sense first of, of how rapidly things are changing. I'm going to take a little bit of a diversion here for those of you who aren't engaged in HCV and talk about definitions of treatment success because they're quite different from what Dr. Iran and Dr. Volburning um, and, um, and others have been talking about today. With HIV, we're talking about trying to suppress the virus for a prolonged period of time. With HCV, we're talking about trying to rid the, host, uh, rid the uh, uh, virus from the host. We're talking about a virectomy. Unfortunately, there's not a billing code for it but we are talking about actually a cure of the disease. So if you start therapy with an anti-HCV regimen, what you see is just like with HIV, a rapid decline in HCV RNA levels in blood, and you go below a limit of detection uh, in a period of time that is dependent on how high uh, 
uh, level of RNA you started with and how potent the regimen is. And uh, in general, we treat for 24 to 48 weeks uh, with the uh, uh, currently uh, current standard of care. And at the end of this 24 to 48 week of, uh, of therapy, weeks of therapy, uh, we uh, will talk about the end of treatment response, ETR or EOT. And this is the fraction of people who, when you are ready to stop therapy, have no detectable virus. Over the next uh, 24 weeks, then, uh, on no therapy, you look to see if, they, uh, if there are any relapses. People who uh, don't relapse at the 24 weeks after therapy is stopped are said to have a sustained virologic response. The European Regulatory Agency refers to this as a cure. The FDA refers to it with some seven-word letter that doesn't say cure, but could be cure, but we're not sure, uh, and uh, just refers to it as sustained virologic response. But in general, what it means is that the virus is not there. You can immunosuppress people. It doesn't come back. If you see HCV again after being off therapy for 24 weeks, most of the time what it means is that they've become reinfected. And it's important to realize that with HCV, the genetic diversity and the, uh, the uh, ineffective adaptive immune response means that people can get infected over and over again, which is one of the concerns uh, in the epidemics going on in the inner cities. Now, what about the, where have we come in, in terms of therapeutics? When interferon came along by itself in the early 90s, uh, at the end of 48 weeks, you could expect to have about 25% of people have no detectable HCV RNA, but half of those would relapse, would relapse in the next uh, 24 weeks. And so you ended up with about one person in seven or eight having a sustained virologic response. If you increase the dose of interferon uh, to a level that was kind of like watching the Republican debates forever, uh, that, in, uh, that intolerable dose, you could increase uh, the, uh, the end of treatment response, but you ended up uh, no better off at the end of the day because the relapse rate just increased. For reasons that still make no sense, when you add ribavirin, you get both a better end-of-treatment response rate and a lower relapse rate. Uh, pegylated interferon does better than interferon alone. Pegylated interferon uh, provides more stable levels of interferon, better tolerated, and gives you both a better end-of-treatment response rate uh, and a better sustained virologic response rate, but still only in the range of 25%. But when you add pegylated interferon to ribavirin, uh, you end up uh, looking at all comers, and by this I mean genotypes 1, 2, 3, and 4, with end-of-treatment response rates of 60% or so and response, uh, sustained virologic response rates of about 55%. If I were showing you only genotype 1, the sustained virologic response rates would be about 45%. So for the most frequently encountered patient that you and I would see, a genotype 1 patient not previously treated, they have about a 50-50 chance of succeeding uh, with treatment with uh, what until recently was a standard of care, pegylated interferon and ribavirin for 48 weeks. Now, what's happened in the last, uh, since we had this course last year, is two new drugs have been approved for the treatment of hepatitis C. These are both protease inhibitors, and a lot of the um, drug discovery approach was based on what we learned from HIV. These protease inhibitors, telaprevir and bosaprevir, uh, are linear molecules that mimic the cleavage sites uh, for hepatitis C that the HCV protease goes after uh, and uh, has the same sort of an effect that HIV protease inhibitors do. The clinical trials that uh, were developed to, um, to uh, 
better uh, to, to define how these drugs were used were fairly straightforward. They compared traditional therapy, uh, pegylated interferon and ribavirin, to um, the traditional therapy plus one of these agents. Now, I'm going to go through this in kind of uh, 35,000 foot terms to point out the differences between telaprevir and bosuprevir about how they were developed. This is telaprevir, and telaprevir is only given for 12 weeks. Uh, there are two reasons for this. The first reason is that most of the impact that it has, most if not all of it, occurs in the first 12 weeks. And the second is that an increasing fraction of people who are on telaprevir will develop a progressively severe rash starting 8 to 12 weeks out, and, and most people you can't go beyond that. So uh, all the telaprevir studies were given in, uh, in a format in which telaprevir was given for 8 to 12 weeks, along with pegylated interferon ribavirin, and then pegylated interferon ribavirin was continued uh, for up to 24 weeks or out to 48 weeks, depending on whether or not you rapidly suppressed your virus uh, in the initial phase of treatment. So one of the concepts of, of HCV therapy is response-guided therapy. People whose viral loads come down quickly have a very good chance of succeeding with therapy and can usually go with a shortened course of therapy. Um, and uh, when you do this, uh, add telaprevir to pegylated interferon ribavirin and follow the early virologic response as a guide to whether you stop at 24 weeks or go for 48 weeks. The bottom line is that the therapeutic success rates go up from the 45% that I told you about uh, to, a rate, to a rate of about uh, 70 to 75%. So you gain about a 25 or 30% uh, uh, increase in sustained virologic response uh, with uh, the addition of uh, an HCV protease number. In this case, this is telaprevir. And you can see that uh, in, the, in this study, which was one of the earlier studies, it really didn't matter whether you used telaprevir for eight weeks or for 12 weeks. They were relatively similar in terms of, of their uh, success rate. You can also see that, as in the case of pegylated interferon and ribavirin alone, uh, Caucasians and Asians do better in terms of response rates uh, than blacks. And the reason for this is something we've talked about at this course before. There is a genetic polymorphism uh, in the interleukin 28B gene that um, predicts success with interferon and ribavirin that is more frequently seen in white uh, and in East Asian, uh, and by that I mean Chinese and Japanese, uh, than in blacks. And that difference uh, accounts for most of this and persists even when you add an additional agent uh, to therapy. Now, if you, the first uh, slide that I showed you, this, this, the first study I showed you was taking people who've never been treated before. And of course, we all have had people, we see people who were treated before with pegylated interferon and ribavirin and have failed therapy. And when you fail therapy, like most ways of failing in life, you can really, really fail. You can either really, really fail or just somewhat fail. And so there are three different types of failure with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. There are people who get to fully suppressed, and then after you stop therapy, the virus comes back. These are referred to as relapsers. Those who partially respond never become undetectable uh, and then relapse are called partial responders. And those whose HCV RNA never really declines more than a log or so are called null responders. And so, as you might imagine, these are people who are the least responsive to pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And you might even not expect to see them benefit at all if you try to treat them with uh, a protease inhibitor because you're just using monotherapy. In fact, uh, you get benefits in each of these three groups, but you get more benefit 
and people who nearly succeeded previously. In fact, people who just were real lapsers in the past, if you add uh, telaprevir to uh, their uh, red, uh, interferon ribavirin regimen, uh, you end up with success rates of 80 to 90 percent. And people who are partial responders, the success rates are uh, 50 to 55, 55 to 60 percent. And the null responders have success rates of about one in three. And the green bars here are the people who are treated with, uh, retreated with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. So you can see that even people who have previously failed uh, can be retreated and benefit uh, by adding an additional agent. Now, bisuprevir, uh, is, uh, uh, its clinical trials were designed somewhat differently. The major difference was that in the case of bisuprevir, there was a lead-in of pegylated interferon and ribavirin that was given for four weeks before bisuprevir was added. And the rationale for that was that if they could drive down the population uh, load of, H of HCV before bisuprevir was added, there might be less drug resistance. It was a nice thought, and that was the way the, drugs, the, the drug was studied. Uh, but that's the way the drug is currently now given based on the clinical trials. People have argued that you didn't need to do this, uh, but the counterargument is that you can uh, look at how the interferon ribavirin response uh, is at this four-week period and get a good idea about whether the patient's going to respond. And some would argue that if you have a substantial response here, that the added benefit of bosepravir is, is only modest. But this, this lead-in period is, is a characteristic of all bosepravir uh, regimens. The design otherwise was quite similar, comparing, uh, comparing bosuprevir to pegylated ribavirin, no, to pegylated interferon ribavirin, uh, with a uh, um, stopping rules that are put in place for drug uh, for treatment failure. And the response rates were about the same that we saw with telaprevir, response rates of, 60, of uh, 65 to 70 percent, and still uh, a better response uh, in Caucasians uh, and Asians uh, than in, in African Americans. Now, I'm not going to show you the treatment experienced uh, studies with bosuprevir because of time, but they were quite similar to the, uh, to the results that were seen with telaprevir, except the bosuprevir studies did not uh, include null responders. And this is just a slide to remind me to make the point that if you have an early virologic response uh, and uh, you stop therapy at 24 weeks, you do just as well as if you go for 48 weeks. So now we can tell patients that uh, if you do respond to these agents, you're not necessarily stuck with a, whole, a full year of, of interferon ribavirin therapy. Now, what are the adverse events? Uh, the adverse events of telaprevir, the main ones that uh, are treatment limiting, are, I'm sorry, are rash uh, and um, um, uh, uh, paritis and perianal uh, itching. The major issues with uh, bosuprevir are worse, worsened anemia compared to pegylated interferon ribavirin and a funny taste uh, that patients experience. The rash um, can be mild, and when it's mild, you just manage it with antihistamines. It can be initially can look very much like a ribavirin rash, uh, and you just follow patients very closely, uh, seeing them every several days. Because it becomes severe and, and uh, generalized, you can actually end up with Stevens-Johnson syndrome, and you want to avoid that. Because this generally occurs kind of 8 to 12 weeks out, because most of the damage to the virus is done early, what you do is you follow patients, um, treat them symptomatically, but have a low threshold to stop the telaprevir if the, if the uh, rash is continuing to evolve. Uh, for anemia, you can reduce the ribavirin doses, 
Uh, some people use erythropoietin, but one important concept that we'll talk about in more detail in the workshop tomorrow is that unlike pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy uh, alone, when you have a third agent on board, you don't lose as much by, re by reducing the, the, uh, the, um, the uh, dose of ribavirin. Because, so this third agent actually makes it less critical to push, push, push uh, with ribavirin. And let's uh, now then uh, talk about co-infected individuals. Um, these are two studies that uh, are beginning to show us how to use uh, telaprevir and bosuprevir and co-infected individuals presented about six weeks ago in the Seattle AIDS meeting. Doug Dietrich presented the results with telaprevir. The telaprevir study um, uh, was one that, um, in, by background, uh, had the benefit of not having substantial drug-drug interactions uh, uh, between telaprevir and HIV drugs. There is an interaction with darunavir that means you would not want to use darunavir as a protease inhibitor, and you have to increase telaprevir dosing uh, in the presence of efavirenz because efavirenz induces telaprevir uh, metabolism. Otherwise, uh, telaprevir uh, was relatively easy to give with antiretroviral drugs. This study uh, used the same sort of design that... Uh, we talked about before, Part A were people who had not yet started antiretroviral therapy because they didn't need it yet. Part B were people on successful antiretroviral therapy uh, with uh, uh, drugs that did not interact with telaprevir or with interferon ribavirin. And to cut to the chase, um, the uh, response rates here, um, they, they, the trial included about 60 patients, most of whom were on antiretroviral therapy, most of whom made it through the, the full course of therapy. And the uh, addition of, of pegylated interferon ribavirin, this is the taking all patients, uh, including those on or off antiretroviral therapy, the improved response rate was about 25 to 30 percent, just like in mono-infected patients. So we're beginning to see that um, the addition of a protease inhibitor to standard of care in co-infection has the same sort of an effect as with uh, mono-infected patients. So side effects, uh, the major side effects were these cutaneous ones that I told you about before managed the same way uh, as in mono-infection. And let's, I'm not going to, uh, you have in your handout uh, a summary of some of the PK data. I'm not going to go through it in great detail here, but the bottom line with telaprevir is it's relatively easy to give here. Bosuprevir uh, is a little more complicated because in terms of its drug interactions, the data are in your handout, the individual tables, but the top line uh, issue is that what bosuprevir does is it reduces ritonavir levels, which in turn uh, cause problems when you're using a boosted protease inhibitor. This was not really known uh, at the time the co-infection studies were started, so patients were actually allowed to be on boosted protease inhibitors. We know better now. Uh, in reverse, uh, if you use uh, ritonavir lopinavir or ritonavir darunavir, you uh, reduce the levels of bosuprevir to uh, by 40 to 60 percent. Uh, boosted uh, atazanavir does not do this. So this study was, uh, the study in co-infection was one that let, was led by Mark Solkowski, again reported in Seattle in early March. Uh, and this one, uh, again, included people who uh, had not been treated for HCV, uh, people who were all on therapy, so they weren't people who were not needing antiretroviral therapy. 
Uh, and uh, drugs that were not allowed uh, were uh, notably ephedrine, which can't be uh, given with bosuprevir, uh, and uh, the drugs that can't be given with pegylated uh, uh, interferon and ribavirin because of liver toxicity, um, but uh, protease inhibitors were allowed. The design, again, was what you would expect, uh, the usual uh, lead-in with uh, pegylated interferon and ribavirin uh, in all patients, and then bosuprevir was added to one arm, Everybody was treated for 48 weeks, uh, and uh, response rates were monitored. And again, uh, patients uh, who, uh, at the end of therapy, the response rate in the pegylated interferon ribavirin arm was about 30%. Uh, with bosuprevir, the response, the added bosuprevir, the response rate was about 65%. And the sustained virologic response rate at 12 weeks out, not 24 weeks, because the study was reported before the 24-week data were out, uh, about 60% of people had a sustained virologic response if they had the three-drug regimen, which is very, is quite comparable to uh, the story with telaprevir. Uh, most of the relapses occur in the first four to eight weeks out, so we don't expect this to change much, but formally we should wait for the SVR24 data. And uh, it's important to know that there were three people on uh, HIV protease inhibitors whose HIV uh, uh, broke through during this therapy, reflecting these drug-drug interactions issues that I talked about earlier. Now, where are we going? Uh, I think this is the most exciting uh, issue, and that is that we're already to a point that we've had, uh, we've begun to see uh, regimens in which no interferon and ribavirin are used. We knew early on that these were potent regimens, but we also knew early on, this is the early telaprevir data showing rapid declines in HCVRNA, but rebound on therapy with the emergence of drug-resistant mutants. Uh, but we've seen in the New England Journal, published earlier this year, uh, Analog showed that uh, in a uh, uh, pilot-sized uh, experiment with about a, a, about a dozen patients treated with a, uh, a protease inhibitor and an NS5A inhibitor, this is another molecular target for HCV, no interferon and ribavirin, that uh, the uh, sustained virologic response rates after 24 weeks of therapy were seen with a couple of patients having relapses after therapy was over. So this was really a very uh, important result. A number of people broke through on the way, but some people actually um, succeeded with no interferon or ribavirin, shocking uh, the GI community. Now, the, um, let's just finish uh, with a couple of comments about resistance. Um, this shows you uh, the fraction of people with resistance to telaprevir when a telaprevir regimen fails at the time of failure, about 75% of people with bulk sequencing of virus, you can detect drug resistance. Over time, uh, if, if you resequence these people, wild-type virus, at least in the plasma, replaces uh, drug-resistant virus, just like we see in HIV. Unlike HIV, though, we don't have a DNA intermediate. We don't have a latent pool of resting cells with this archive, what we don't yet know, though, is what threshold is important in terms of retreatment with protease inhibitors. And that will just require clinical trials to know what this means from the clinical perspective. Luckily, there are drugs that are very difficult for the virus to develop resistance to. And it turns out that uh, nucleoside analog uh, polymerase inhibitors, uh, kind of analogs to, say, AZT and tenofovir, uh, but directed at HCV, Lead, uh, if you develop resistance to these, uh, with, uh, if HCV develops resistance to these, it takes a big hit in fitness. So it's very difficult for HCV in vivo to develop resistance to these drugs. 
And to show you how this works in, the, uh, in patients, this is a drug, uh, GS7977, which is a potent uh, nucleotide analog. It can be given once daily with or without food, very well tolerated with a very high uh, barrier to resistance. So in some pilot uh, studies, uh, I'll show you first, the first set of patients who reported last, week, last year at uh, the uh, liver disease meetings in San Francisco in, in November were patients with genotype 2 and 3. These were studied first because this agent actually turns out to be active against genotype 2 and 3, and the reason, the rationale was that these people could be treated pretty well with interferon if they failed. And so this was kind of a lead group to see how, the, how this drug did with no, interferon, uh, with no interferon, but with ravivarin. And what you can see is that at, uh, uh, at uh, 24 weeks, 100% of the 10 patients had no detectable virus, and uh, much to everybody's uh, uh, excitement, uh, 12 weeks later, uh, 100% of these maintained uh, sustained virologic response. So 10 out of 10 sustained virologic responses with genotype 2 and 3 uh, with pegylated with, with uh, uh, ribavirin and this nucleotide. Now, next reported at Croy uh, was the next cohort treated. And what they did here was said, well, Null responders don't benefit that much from adding bocepravir or telaprevir. And they may not, you know, because we're not going to be using interferon, it may not matter. So let's take 10 of them and give them the same regimen we gave to genotype 2 and 3 patients. They should do the same. And it turns out that they did well initially. They had a nice rapid virologic response. They had a nice end-of-treatment response. And everybody was very excited when the abstract was submitted. But between the time the abstract was submitted and the meeting, this was the abstract was submitted, and by the time the meeting occurred, uh, all but one of them relapsed. So this was a uh, kind of a major blow to people's uh, excitement about uh, um, where this was going. And so, at the end of treatment, uh, at the sustained biologic response rate here was about was about 10 percent. Strange result because we thought that null response had to do with interferon uh, therapy. But it probably has to do with innate immunity, and interferon uh, by going through innate immunity is manifestation of that. And now kind of giving you an idea about how fast this field is moving, reported at the European liver meetings the next month, uh, the next cohort of 25 people were genotype 1 treatment-naive patients. They hadn't failed interferon. They had a nice rapid virologic response. Uh, they had a very good end-of-treatment response rate. And their sustained virologic response rate was about uh, 80%. So uh, we'll see more, I think, over the course of the next uh, 6 to 12 months, what happens when you add a third agent that is not uh, pegylated interferon or if you treat longer. But I think this gives you some idea about where the field is going. So let me just close and say that uh, we have a large number of people who are co-infected. Uh, HIV infection accelerates HCV progression. Uh, it complicates HCV treatment. There are more drug interactions, lower response rates, more toxicity. A lot of agents coming along. Interferon-free regimens are uh, really on the horizon. And what I hope many of you will agree is that uh, when you um, go home today, uh, that uh, the number of people who are going to be, need to be treated, um, uh, many of you will get into uh, this field and help as the mono-infected patients uh, come to uh, need care over the course of the next uh, several years, taking advantage of your experience of co-infection to, uh, to move to a simpler patient population. Thanks very much.
We'll take questions for both Dr. Tracy and Dr. Schooley. One of the questions, the first question is, are there methods to reduce inflammatory processes associated with aging? Um, are there nutritional factors you can invoke? Um, decreasing alcohol use, using fish oil, um, other actions? Sure. So um, I hope part of the take-home message, <coughs> excuse me, was that uh, the buildup of chronic disease burden is an important part of building up inflammation, which then in a circular way cycles back and accelerates those unwanted processes. So uh, reduction of risk factors for chronic disease is, of course, one of the major ways to do this. Um, part of your response to these risk factors is driven, frankly, by how fat you are. So reducing adipose tissue is a major deal. And if we can get a hold of that, uh, that's, a, that's a big thing. So diet in general is important. Caloric intake is important. My own view is that we're designed on average to consume something like uh, 1,800 to 2,000 calories a day in, on the average person. We consume about 3,000 to 4,000. So before you worry about trans fats, you ought to get rid of half the calories in your diet, and then you can worry about trans fats. But that's a personal opinion. And um, so I, exercise and diet is, is very, very important in all of this. And there are plenty of drugs that are coming along. But again, you're layering on top of problems you could handle uh, if we, from a public health standpoint if we get people to lose weight and exercise more. Chip. Um if a patient with co-infection is on a tripla, which of the protease inhibitors for HCV would be the drug of choice? In that situation, the, the best choice would be telaprevir. You would uh, have to uh, adjust your dose of telaprevir upward to take, it, to take into account the impact of efavirenz, but you would not be able to use bosuprevir there. If with time, Russ, the telomere length decreases, and the questioner states that nucleoside trans uh, transcriptase inhibitors may also cause shortening, is this something to, that we need to worry about? I'm not sure that we know that nucleoside tra <laughs> reverse transcriptase inhibitors do shorten telomeres, but... Well, I, in general, I'll, I'll simply make the comment that I, I don't have detailed knowledge of, of this either, but I'll make the comment that uh, I think the HIV population is, is a unique population. There are many other unique populations, but this is certainly one from a biochemical standpoint and needs to be studied carefully. The, the virus itself, as far as we can tell, is driving the system to hyperinflammation and immunosenescence on the adaptive side. So you're getting a lot of telomere shortening. You're using up cells. You're going to run out of partially differentiated stem cells in a variety of areas sooner than you otherwise would. And what we need to do is calm that inflammation down and keep that quality of the adaptive immune response up as high as we can to help stave that off. 
Yeah. I guess Chip, my understanding is that the shortening of telomeres in HIV infection is due to the HIV infection, not the treatment. Unless I'm totally mistaken. That's my understanding as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I would worry more about the ongoing damage done by viral replication than from the uh, H, uh, the antiretroviral drugs. Well, one um, thing to keep, <clears throat> excuse me again, I think in mind is that um, HIV infection makes you more susceptible to a wide variety of other influences, yeah. each of which can then participate in the acceleration and use, use of of partially differentiated stem cells in their own right, leading to an overall decline, that integrated physiology again. What about um, the use of a liver biopsy in managing patients with HCV, both mono or co-infected? We're going to have a workshop tomorrow in which a lot of the nuances, the practical aspects of managing patients with HCV are um, uh, are delved into in more in more detail. Uh, liver biopsies, I think, are going to become much much less important than they were in the past. Uh, in general, we did liver biopsies to try to convince ourselves and the patient that they had enough liver damage to require therapy and to make them be willing to put up with a year of interferon and ribavirin. Uh, if we get to a point that we can cure 90% of people with a couple of drugs taken for 12 weeks. Um, we're going to be going to, uh, we're not going to need a liver biopsy to convince people they should be treated or to convince us to write a prescription. So I think liver biopsies will go away uh, in the not too distant future, which is another reason I think that uh, the hepatologists will not be as important in managing most people with hepatitis as they have been in the past. We should continue to work with them closely because there will be people who have complications of liver disease that occur in uh, the setting of chronic HCV or HBV infection. And we should use them for that expertise. They should use us for our, our antiviral expertise and, and not try to segregate the disease into two separate sets of communities. But I think liver biopsies uh, are going to be increasingly irrelevant. Uh, in clinical trials, the FDA has been wanting to see some evidence of liver disease to have people eligible for clinical trials because they worry about risk-benefit ratios and taking people who have HCV infection but a normal liver and putting them at risk for uh, a complication of a drug that is still an experimental drug at a time uh, when they could wait and use that drug if it was shown to be useful. But I think as we learn more about the safety of these drugs, uh, the liver biopsies will go away. What about the, um, what the Europeans are using, these non-invasive estimates of liver fibrosis? Uh, think they will be useful? Or? Those are useful, and, and if you see evidence of, uh, and, and there are several different ones that include either biochemical markers that... Uh, are uh, combinations of platelet count and albumin levels and so forth, or there is uh, essentially a fancy ultrasound that's approved in Europe and we, I've heard will ultimately be approved here in the U.S. Those show evidence of liver fibrosis, liver inflammation. You know you've got liver disease and you would uh, feel comfortable offering people uh, anti-HCV therapy. Uh, they're not 100% sensitive, though, and uh, again, uh, in, the, in the future, uh, they'll be... Um, I think, uh, less necessary in making therapeutic decisions. The liver disease staging is still important these days, though, with interferon and ribavirin on board, particularly interferon, is to know that someone doesn't have decompensated cirrhosis. But that's a clinical decision. It's not histologic. Do they have varices? Have they developed ascites? Have they had hepatic encephalopathy? Have they bled? Uh, if, a varic, if a varix is bled, they have decompensated cirrhosis. Those people have a very high risk of developing fulminant liver failure when you treat them with an interferon-based regimen. So that's a clinical staging uh, issue, and that's useful to have a hepatologist to help you look at that with uh, endoscopy and so forth. 
but that's not a liver biopsy based decision ok well thank you both